Well, good morning, everybody. Um, it's good to be with you again today. Uh, I'm just gonna just gonna jump right in this morning um, with a series of stories. First, this: when I was six, uh, my dad was diagnosed with thyroid cancer, um, and now thyroid cancer has become like a, a very treatable type of cancer these days. But back in the late 80s, um, it required an extremely invasive surgery and chemotherapy. And the surgery led to almost half of my dad's neck being removed, which it still is. I mean, obviously, it didn't come back, so it's still gone. Um, he looks, it makes him, like, honestly, it makes him look very thin, which is probably nice as we're getting older. But half of his neck was removed. He had hundreds of staples and stitches and a long recovery that I remember through my childhood. And one of my earliest memories um, is praying for my dad to be healed. Right after we got the diagnosis, I remember our family coming together and praying. And in a sense, he was. Um, years later, though, one of my very best friends uh, in middle school and high school at my church was diagnosed with a degenerative muscle disease that he knew would eventually take away his ability to walk. Uh, and I remember praying desperately in our youth group, like bringing all the kids in the youth group together and laying on hands on him and praying that he would be healed. And he wasn't. Years later, when I was dating Meredith, I remember asking God to tell me clearly if I should ask her to marry me. Um, and he did. It's one of the times that I feel like I heard God speak to me. And so I did, because God told me to, which I remind her of like, fairly frequently. <laughs> and then, when the church that we helped to plant, after we got married, um, that we helped to plant in our mid-20s, when that church began to fall apart, I remember coming together with a group of people from that church and praying earnestly with all our hearts for God to save it, and he didn't. And then, years after that, when Meredith and I were offered the chance to adopt our daughter Cecilia, I prayed for clarity about that in a story that most of you have heard, and he gave it to me. And then, when I was desperately seeking a job as a professor after graduate school about a year later, I prayed for that job, and nothing happened. And then more recently, when my friend Joe, my best friend Joe, needed a liver transplant to save his life, I prayed, and God delivered. And then, when my best friend Joe got stage 4 cancer from that liver that was transplanted into his body, I prayed for God to heal him, and God did again. Then, when I needed to decide whether or not to apply for this job once upon a time, I prayed for confidence and an answer, and God never gave me that. Now, these are some episodes in the ongoing story of my life with God. And if you've been living your life with God for very long, I'm confident that you have similar stories to tell. And one of the biggest mysteries, I think, of faith, of this faith that we share, is this one. If God can do anything, why doesn't God do everything? If God can do anything, why doesn't he do everything? Have you ever asked that question? Imagine you probably have. Are you asking it still? Well, now's the part where you want me to give you an answer, right? And I'll spoil it and say that I don't have one. Our story this morning is about a man named Naaman, who was a Syrian general during the time of the divided monarchy in Israel. And last week we talked about King David. And by the time David's grandsons were set to rule, and because of David's sin that we talked about last week with Bathsheba, 
against Bathsheba. The country that he ruled was splitting into two kingdoms, Israel in the north and Judah in the south. And the Syrians were the chief adversaries of the southern kingdom. And Naaman was among their leaders, among the Syrian leaders. And his name appears in the Bible in just two places. It appears in today's story, which comes from 2 Kings chapter 5. And then it also appears in the Gospel of Luke, when Jesus references Naaman to address the same question about God and about healing that we're wrestling with today. We'll start with Jesus, and then we'll, we'll go back to 2 Kings. It's the beginning of Jesus' ministry, and he's called his first disciples, and he's performed miracles by the Sea of Galilee in a town named Capernaum. And then after these miracles and the gathering of the disciples, he is returned to his hometown of Nazareth. And when he gets there, he goes and he speaks in the synagogue, and everybody is amazed at his wisdom. But they're all kind of on pins and needles because they're not here to listen to Jesus talk. What they're waiting on is they're waiting on this boy that they knew, who they watched grow up. They're waiting on him to do some of these miracles that they've heard word that he can do. But instead of doing miracles, what Jesus says is this. He says, doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, physician, heal thyself. And you will say, do here also in your hometown the things that we have heard you did at Capernaum. Truly, I tell you, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. But the truth is, there were many widows in Israel in the time of Elijah when the heaven was shut up three years and six months. And there was a severe famine over all the land, yet Elijah was sent to just one of them. There were also many with a skin disease in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed except Naaman the Syrian. And when the people heard this, all in the synagogue were filled with rage. They got up, drove him out of the town, and led him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they might hurl him off the cliff. Jesus brings up the story of Naaman in correlation with the question, why doesn't God always heal? And the very mention of Naaman's name, the very mention of his name, the people who knew Jesus as a boy, right, who watched Jesus grow up, who smiled at him in the market and worshipped alongside his parents. Those same people led him to the edge of a cliff so that they could throw him off it. So what is so upsetting to them? What does Naaman have to do with the apparent inconsistency or the, even the inadequacy of God's answers to prayers? Well, we should go back and read it. So that's what we're going to do. As I said before, the story of Naaman is found in 2 Kings. And unlike most of the stories that we've told this summer, 2 Kings is a contemporaneous account. It's not an oral tradition ferried to Babylon with the exiles from Israel and then written down centuries later, like the stories we've talked about up to this point. Instead, 2 Kings is an historical record of the time um, that it is describing. And the story begins in 2 Kings 5 with Naaman, who's, like I said, an enemy commander who has contracted leprosy. And then we pick up here in verse 2. It says, Now the Syrians, on one of their raids, had taken a young girl captive from the land of Israel, and she served Naaman's wife. 
And she said to her mistress, If only my Lord were with the prophet who is in Samaria, he would cure him of his skin disease. So Naaman went in and told his Lord just what the girl from the land of Israel had said. And the king of Aram said, Go then, and I will send along a letter to the king of Israel. So by chance, Naaman's wife has an Israelite for a servant. I shouldn't say by chance, right? By captivity. She has a servant who's from Israel. And then that servant shows unexpected kindness and tells Naaman that this prophet that she knows, Elisha, um, is famous for healing. And so Naaman, perhaps more out of desperation than faith or hope, seeks permission from his king to consort with their enemies, right? Their enemies in Israel. And then, strangely, not only does the king allow Naaman to go do this, which seems risky, right, to send one of your generals to the enemy um, so they can plead for healing, right? This is obviously a risky thing. The king agrees to do it, but not only does he agree to do it, he sends with Naaman a letter to the king of Israel explaining what's going on. And then also it says that he sends with him this entire wagon load of treasure, sending treasure to their enemy to kind of buy the favor of Elisha and to see this miracle done. And so Naaman goes to the Israelite king, and when he reveals his true purpose, this happens. The king, it says, tore his clothes and said, Am I God to give death or life, that this man sends word to me to cure a man of his skin disease? Just look and see how he is trying to pick a quarrel with me. But when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he sent a message to the king. Why have you torn your clothes? Let him come to me, that he may learn that there is a prophet in Israel. So the king thinks it's a setup, right? He thinks, I can't do this, and when I can't do it, it's going to justify some kind of attack or some kind of retribution. But Elisha doesn't say that. Elisha sees a bigger picture here, right? He sees that Naaman's affliction is an opportunity for God to display his power to Israel's enemies. If God does this, then the Syrians will know that there's a God in Israel. So we pick up again in verse 9. It says, So Naaman came with his horses and chariots and halted at the entrance of Elisha's house. Elisha sent a messenger to him, saying, Go wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored, and you shall be clean. But Naaman became angry and went away, saying, I thought that for me he would surely come out and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God and would wave his hand over the spot and cure the skin disease. Are not the rivers of Damascus better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. But his servants approached and said to him, Father, if the prophet had commanded you to do something difficult, would you not have done it? How much more when all he said to you was, wash and be clean? So Naaman went down and immersed himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God, his flesh was restored like the flesh of a young boy, and he was cleaned. All right, we're going to come back to some of the lessons here. The quick version is this, right? And you guys, some of you are smiling when I was reading because you see it. It's nice when you see the moral of the story right away, right? You see, like, Naaman is haughty and he's proud, but his servants show him this way 
to humility, right? Just because the task is easy doesn't mean the task is beneath you. That's the lesson. Right? Just because the task is easy doesn't mean it's beneath you. God wants to do more than just this miracle. He wants this miracle to reinforce an act of humility, and an act of faith, and an act of trust. And so, in that way that pastors do when we preach sermons, I should also say to you, it is much the same with us. Right? Are we being haughty? Do we like refuse to do the easy thing because we think the thing ought to be hard? And do we forget that the miracle alone isn't the point? The miracle is not the point. We'll come back to some of those things, but let's keep going here for a minute. So what happens in the story? Well, Naaman goes back to Elisha's house, and he says this. Now I know that there is no God in all the earth except in Israel. Please accept a present from your servant. That's when he gives him the wagon of treasure. But Elisha said, as the Lord lives whom I serve, I will accept nothing. Now, what do we do with that? Well, Naaman's treasure, it turns out, doesn't pay for the the miracle beforehand as like a down payment, nor will Elisha accept it as like a tribute afterwards. And Naaman is annoyed at first that Elisha won't come out to meet him when he arrives, but now at the end of the story, I think we see what it is that Naaman, I'm sorry, what it is that Elisha is up to. Because although Naaman has come because the servant told him about Elisha, he's going to leave Israel having interacted really only with Israel's God, not with this man, but with God. And the point seems to be that Elisha isn't the great one, right? God is the great one. Elisha doesn't have power. God has power. And so in this moment, Elisha refuses both the credit for the miracle and also he refuses the reward for the miracle. Now, there are two interesting postscripts in this story in 2 Kings at the bottom of of chapter 5. I want to cover them real quickly. The first has to do with something strange that Naaman does right after all of this. Before he leaves, it says that, or he says, Please let two mule loads of earth be given to your servant, for your servant will no longer offer burnt offering or sacrifice to any god except the Lord. So we should pause, right, and ask, like, why does Naaman want Israel dirt? This is what he wants. He wants to take a wagon of dirt home with him. Well, this goes back to something we've talked about, specifically a few weeks ago um, when we talked about the Tower of Babel, and it it regards the religious cultures in the ancient Near East where the prevailing belief, as we talked about that week, was that gods are local to places, right? A god lives here. And so Naaman has been healed by Israel's god in Israel's rivers, like on Israel dirt, and he wants to worship that god. But he doesn't think that he can worship that God on Syrian soil. And so he wants to take home like a wagon of dirt so he can kind of bring Israel back with him and then like lay it, I guess, at his house. And then he can set up an altar to the Israelites God on Israelite dirt in his own neighborhood, right? And that's how he can do this. But Elisha declines, right? He tells Naaman instead to go in peace. He does not allow him to do this, this like earth movement that he's planning to do. And the second postscript that we see has to do with Elisha's servant, who's a man named Gehazi. And when Naaman leaves with all this treasure, right, because Elisha wouldn't take it, so he's taking it back home with him. When he leaves, Elisha's servant, Gehazi, follows after him 
and he makes up a story so that he can keep that treasure for himself. He like tricks everybody and tries to get the treasure. And this plan that he come up, comes up with, which we don't have to go into detail, but you can read it in 2 Kings 5. Um, the plan works, and Gehazi takes two bags of treasure, and he stashes them away in hiding, and then he goes back um, to Elisha. But when he returns to Elisha, God, of course, has revealed to Elisha what Gehazi has done, and then it turns out that Gehazi gets the leprosy. So like the leprosy went from Naaman to, I guess, the river, and then at the end of the story, Gehazi gets it as like punishment for his greed. So that's all the story. Now with this whole story told, right, the question is what can we do with it? I think there are three big takeaways from the Naaman story on its own terms, and then we're going to get back to our, our focal question. The first is this. The first is that God's wide-ranging attention to people not just in Israel, but also in Syria, always serves a greater purpose. God's attention serves a greater purpose. Naaman isn't an Israelite, but he receives a blessing. Why? Well, the obvious answer is because God's desire, right, is to be known by all nations, to be seen and understood as the God in all of the world. And so Naaman, by being healed, carries God's supremacy, the message of God's supremacy, back with him to Syria. And that is both good for Israel, right, because it means their enemies now have a reason to respect, if not to fear them. And it's also good for Syria, because now they can see that they have the opportunity to be treated as Israel's equal in the eyes of God. Now, in my mind, that's why we get this interesting story about that cartload of dirt, right? Naaman wants to bring God back with him in this very specific way, but his imagination for what it means to bring God back with him is limited by his own understanding of how God's work within his own culture. God, in other words, quite literally, like, won't fit in his box, right? Won't fit in his wagon, um, and the conclusion is that God's authority is everywhere. Naaman can't see it because Naaman's thinking the way that he's been led to think. But the reality is that God is bigger than this plan. God can do anything, right? And that takes us back to that initial point this morning. God can do anything. A second takeaway is this, and it's that we can't always, we can't ever actually serve two masters, which can be convicting in churches, right? Because the message we learned from Gehazi and the stealing of the treasure is that we don't get to profit off God's desire to be known by people. We don't get to profit off God's desire to be known by people. Gehazi tries this and he's punished for it. So like Elisha, we are sharing God's kingdom with people. That's what we as Christians exist to do. We're not supposed to be building our own. Now, I'm not going to go nuts with this point because I know that most everybody in this room is like, yeah, yeah, we know. That's why we're at this church and not at like a larger church somewhere else or something like that. I shouldn't have said that. That wasn't kind. Um, I just mean, look at this place. Um, anyways, I know you all agree. So all I'm going to say is this. This community here at Revolution doesn't exist and it's never going to exist for its own sake. That's not a thing that we're going to do. I don't care if this church is famous. I don't care if it's big. I don't care if it's wealthy. 
We are always going to do things that resist credit and share credit and try to partner with other organizations and churches that are doing good work. We're not going to try and make revolution like the church of Annapolis. We're not. And the simple reason is that our culture, right, is wired to look for heroes instead of looking for God. We talked about that some last week. And if you are in a culture that is wired to look for heroes or a culture that's wired to carry dirt around or whatever the wiring is, you have to be intentional about the ways that you resist that bias and that tendency in the culture. And so we are going to be intentional about the ways that we resist trying to profit off of or build the name or fame of this particular community. The final takeaway is this. Real faith isn't about effort. Real faith is about trust. Real faith isn't about effort. Real faith is about trust. So consider Naaman's reaction to being told to go bathe in the river, right? He says, we've got rivers at home, which is a great response. But there's the lovely moment when his servant says to him, if God had asked you to do something hard, you would have done it. So shouldn't you be willing to do something easy? And I think this point has a lot of continuing power with us. At the end of the day, what we believe as Christians is that eternal life itself is a gift that requires nothing of the recipient beyond a willingness to accept it. That's it. All we have to do to be blessed is believe. And frankly, that can feel like too little of a thing sometimes. In response to that worry that maybe it's a little too easy, we sometimes invent a lot of extra steps and hurdles that we have to clear to deserve God's love. And so we will do things like promote legalism or treat discipleship or even spiritual disciplines as requirements for salvation. But the truth is, and I do that, like I know that's, that might feel like a cheap point, but it's not. But the truth is that the way we live out our faith is meant to be as a response to what we have been given and not as a way of earning the thing that we have been given. All that stuff, my discipline, my adherence to the rules, my discipleship, my commitment to writing a sermon and standing up here and sharing it every week, like all of this is supposed to be a response, not something I'm doing to try and prove something or earn something. That's a heart change, right? That's something that has to change in me. In the Naaman story, the real work God wants Naaman to do, right, comes after his leprosy is cured and not before it. He wants Naaman to go home and to tell the story of what God has done for him. And that's a task, right, that's going to take the rest of Naaman's lifetime, which has gotten significantly longer here as a result of the miracle that he has received. But this task is worth doing, not because if Naaman does it, then he will be healed, or because if he stops doing it, God will take away the healing that's already been given. It's worth doing solely because he was healed. And sharing good news should be the natural response to being blessed. I think in our own lives, in my life, I can learn a lot about this, 
right? God loves you first. God saves you first. You follow him. You pray to him. You worship him at church, at home, in your life. You seek out his guidance, his wisdom. You share the love that he has shown you with others. You pray for people to be healed all because of what he has already freely given you. Because what he has freely given you is wonderful. Which means that our faith isn't a job that we do expecting like a spiritual paycheck at the end of the week. Our faith is something that should follow after our delight. But we don't delight all the time. I don't delight all the time. I think a major reason that I don't delight and maybe a reason that you don't delight goes back to that question at the beginning this morning. If God can do anything, why doesn't he do everything? When Jesus mentions Naaman, instead of performing miracles, his neighbors try to kill him. Why is that? The answer is that Israel has lepers everywhere, right? It's confusing why God is going to take care of outsiders before he fully meets the needs of his own people. And I wonder why God answered some of my prayers and not other ones of my prayers too. Like was healing my friend Joe not once but twice really that much more of a witness than healing my friend Jason would have been? Would it have killed God to grant me as much confidence about taking this job as he did about marrying my wife or adopting my child? The truth is, though, that when we ask these kinds of questions, we are operating from a scarcity mindset. And we're falling for like the oldest trick there is, which is believing there is some limit to God's blessing and love. Like underneath that anger about Naaman is this fear that a miracle has been wasted on Naaman. Why let this person live and let this person die? But perhaps Jesus' point, and perhaps God's point, God's point, is that we just simply cannot see this bigger miracle that's currently underway. Naaman thinks only of his leprosy, Right? But God's mind and heart are set on Syria. I think only of myself, right? My life, my relationships, my job. But God thinks of my family and my friends and my neighbors. And I think that I live in doubt. Maybe we all live in doubt because even though we have hopes about it, we don't really know what comes next in this life. But we are here this morning because on some level we are hoping that God does know. And the consistent pattern in Scripture is this. It is that expanding our community, inviting new people to trust Him, that is what miracles are actually meant for. They're not meant for the healing. They're meant to expand the community, to invite new people to trust Which I think ties this thing together by, as like this. What if humility and trust really are the ultimate goals of this thing, right? And God really does have a plan for taking care of us that extends beyond the limits of our own understanding. And this is why I think we can talk and think and reflect on Naaman. Because Naaman can't imagine a God, right, that isn't bound to dirt. He can't. 
But just because he couldn't imagine that God doesn't mean he didn't find him anyway. And the people of Nazareth can't imagine a Messiah who isn't focused with all of himself on their material needs. That's as big as their imagination for Messiah gets. But even though they're limited in that way, they find a bigger Messiah than that anyway. And we can't imagine a God who doesn't do everything all the time in the ways that we expect him to. But it's worth considering what if we found one too. So I think the actual thing to take away from this story is this. That this story invites us to wrestle with radical trust. Not to just blindly accept it, but to wrestle with radical trust. That's, I think, the thing that we're showing people. We're not showing people certainty about a God who behaves in all the ways that we expect him to. We're trying to show them faith in a God who has shown us enough of his love that we can rely on his goodness to still surprise us somewhere down the line. And so this week, the challenge is this. I want to invite you to really think about this thing. Have you seen and felt enough of God's love for you that you can leave the bag of dirt behind? Can you trust what you don't wholly understand? Not because understanding isn't important, but because there is a spark of actual hope in your relationship with God that is worth fighting for and pursuing. My sense of the world that we are in right now is that people don't want easy answers. What people want right now is they want authenticity. They want you to be straight with them about the things that are hard. And I think that includes not always getting what we want, not always understanding. But I think in the world right now, people are desperate that they will find other people who struggle and still cling to hope. And I think that we are supposed to be those people. And what it takes from us, what it takes from you, is openness and vulnerability and carrying the questions of a real story, even though it's confusing and hard and your understanding is limited, carrying that with you in your wagon instead of carrying like a load of certainty as a pile of dirt. I think when we're honest about the things that are hard, we testify to something worth asking questions about. We do that not because we doubt, we do it because we are hoping that we can believe.